Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, author of Hoodoo Magic and Cleansing, Binaural Production Engineer, Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to this show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And before we get started, I want to apologize in advance to everyone because I am recording from a different location. I moved across the country to New Jersey, and I'm currently staying in a camper with my dog. So, if you hear my dog howling, barking, crying, whining, chewing on bones, I apologize in advance. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Steve Andrews, the Bard of Eli. And I have been following Steve on Facebook for about 10 years. And I was really surprised this morning when I checked my calendar and saw that you were my guest today. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for having me on, on your, your podcast, Gary. And uh, I'm delighted that you've been following me for the last 10 years. So you know a bit about my crazy life. So it is an awesome life. It is an awesome life. So let, let's talk a little bit first. Um, I mean... I don't know of many actual bards anymore. Uh, what What is a bard, and how did you become one? Okay, um, I mean, actually, you know, people do ask me this, what is a bard? And, of course, I assume that people know what a bard is, but they don't. And and in some places, especially, like, they don't. Like, in America, people don't seem to know what a bard mm-hmm. is. Um, even in Wales, people don't know what a bard is. And... and it, Wales is kind of actually, you know, it's pretty well known for having bards. Yeah, I thought that's where it started. Yeah, Stanford, you know. But um, a bard, a bard is um, a musician, uh, a poet, a storyteller, a singer-songwriter, a minstrel, a performer, you know, all, all these um, kind of creative things, you know, basically a bit mu- musical. Music is important mm-hmm. in it anyway. What actually happened, how I became a bard, was, uh, there were actually two, uh, two main reasons behind that. One is I'm a member of uh, uh, King Arthur Pendragon's Druid Order, the Loyal Arthurian War Band, and, and maybe even that'll need some explaining, because people usually yeah. say, oh, what's the lot about? But I am actually a quest knight of his Druid Order, and I am also a bard of his order. And... Uh, I, am, I have the title, the principal bard of the Stonehenge Grove of the Loyal Arthurian War Band. That's, that's another title I have. But um, I, I became the bard of Ely uh, because I was living in Cardiff on uh, a very big council estate, which is called Ely. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's, it's known for, uh, as, as well as for being like a massive estate, it's also known because it's where Shaking Stevens came from. And some people don't know who Shaking Stevens was, but he was at one point a really famous rock pop star, and he had a string of hits at the mm-hmm. time. And he actually came from Ely originally. So there is a website somewhere with notable persons on it, and Shaking Stevens is a notable person from Ely, and I am also a notable person from Ely. 
And it's Eli, not Eli. Some people say Eli, and I said, no, it's Eli. Mm -hmm. I thought it was and, Eli. <laughs> to, okay. And to add to the confusion, there is a, um, a city in, uh, in the UK, in England, which is called Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And so some people assume that I'm a bard of that Ely in Cambridge, but I'm not, no, Ely in Wales. Right. But how I got the title, the Bard of Ely, was um, <laughs> I used to have a column in Big Issue magazine. Um, and Big Issue magazine is a magazine that's sold by the homeless to raise money for the homeless. Quite a lot of people are familiar with that. And because I was living in Cardiff, I was writing for Big Issue Cymru, which is the Welsh version of it. And the uh, the editorial team of Big Issue Cymru knew that I was living in Ely, knew that I was a singer-songwriter, because they'd actually reviewed some of my music, knew that I was a poet, knew that I was a performer, knew that I was a storyteller. So they called me the Bard of Ely. And that was like my title. So sometimes we had like a, one of my columns and he would say, the bard of, this week, the Bard of Ely, and then whatever I was doing. So uh, that was going out to thousands of people who were reading the magazine. And I liked the title. I thought, um, you don't usually have a bard coming from a housing estate. Mm -hmm. So I, I liked that. It kind of appealed to my, my sense of humor right. in a way. And I also liked the fact that I, I was this name, the Bard of Ely, was going out to so many readers. So uh, it, it kind of stuck, and, and I liked it. So uh, that's why I'm known as the Bard of Ely. Uh, and I'm also, Steve Andrews is my real name, and there is a kind of a confusion about, you know, uh, is it better for me to be using Steve Andrews, my real name, or the Bard of Ely, because it, you know, it stands out, it's pretty unique, and a, a novel kind of a, a title. And... Uh, it's not, that's an ongoing debate, you know, so, but I am, I am Steve Andrews, the Bard of Ely. <laughs> and, uh, um, if you want to know about King Arthur, basically, uh, he, uh, came to the conclusion that he was the reincarnation of the legendary King Arthur. And he runs a Druid order. And he, in the UK, certainly, he's been in the newspapers a lot. He's actually been on the front page of the Guardian. Uh, 20 odd years ago uh, for getting his sword Excalibur back and um, he actually just featured this on, on his on his Facebook page that's why I thought of that hmm. um, and I remember like the caption that went under his picture which was the main story in the Guardian newspaper was uh, I am King Arthur and this is my sword Excalibur as the Arthur of old took his sword from the stone, I have taken my sword from the stonework of London. And that was it. That was the main, the main story. So that's what I mean. He, he does get like major media coverage uh, quite a bit of the time. And he is um, he's a Druid leader. He's very concerned with Stonehenge. He's been concerned with Stonehenge all the way through. And uh, he's, he's an eco-warrior. He's often, you know, um, being involved in protest camps to stop a road being built or a forest being destroyed or whatever. So, um, you know, he became a friend of mine back in the 90s and I got knighted by him back in the 90s and that's so how I got involved in all of this. And I am a quest knight of the Loyal Arterian Warband. Mm -hmm. um, so, so some of your mission, or, or maybe most of your mission, is about protecting the Earth, right? Oh, very much so, yeah, yes, and uh, this is why, I mean, you can see 
you know, I've got like a butterfly behind me mm -hmm. here, a monarch butterfly, and um, I have reared monarch butterflies. I used to live in Tenerife for nine years, which I, I guess you, you know. And uh, over there, I started looking after monarch butterfly caterpillars mm -hmm. and releasing the adult butterflies. But this all really goes back to when I was a little boy, because when I was a little boy, I discovered nature and I discovered my kind of passion, my fascination in everything which is alive, you know. Because I used to go in the garden and I'd find insects in the garden and I'd say, Mum, Dad, look at this. And, you know, what is this? And maybe they wouldn't know so that they'd get me books on, on nature. And it was, for me, that was like a huge part of my world as a little boy. And, and I used to find caterpillars and then I'd keep the caterpillar and then a caterpillar would change into a chrysalis or a cocoon mm -hmm. and then a moth or the butterfly would emerge. And for me, this was like absolutely wonderful. It's like a magical moment and still is a magical moment in time to see this, this transformation into this amazing, almost like a new creature. And so I started to learn about moths and butterflies and caterpillars when I was a little boy. And I've been, you know, looking after them kind of ever since, you know. So uh, because I, I've also been seeing, like, like when I was little, okay, when I was little, I thought that all these animals and birds and butterflies and flowers and all this stuff, they were going to be here forever, you know. But then I started to notice that things were, were being done by people that was actually destroying these creatures and flowers. And, and, and for me, it was horrible, but it, it's just got worse and worse and worse every year. And uh, it started, I guess, like I'd have been about eight or nine. My mum used to take me to a local park. And in this park, there was a pond. And in the pond, there were tadpoles, there were newts, there were dragonflies. And for me, this all of this was amazing. Right. And we used to go there, but then one day, the pond had gone. And what they'd done was they'd filled the pond in and they made a flower bed out of it. And for me, this was absolutely horrible. How can they do that? Right. And I was a little boy, you know. But that was, I, I, I guess, like one of the first incidents in my life where I saw nature as such being destroyed. And then I saw many more examples of ponds being destroyed, you know. So I started to learn that the reason wildlife is vanishing is because people destroy where it lives. You know, whatever it is, you know, be it a, a frog or a fish or a butterfly or, you know, whatever the, or a bird, any of the creatures that we share the planet with are having their homes destroyed. And in the last 10 years or so, as I'm sure you're well aware, it, it's really stepped up. Yeah. So, you know, roads are being built everywhere, train lines are being built, forests are being chopped down. Uh, in, in, in even in cities, trees are being chopped down for whatever reason. And uh, so it doesn't surprise me when I see like somebody talking about the latest statistics of such and such a species is declining. Mm -hmm. I think, well, you know, what do you expect? It hasn't got anywhere to live now. True. So all of this really has kind of motivated me and to get even more involved in trying to do what I can. And uh, because of that, you know, um, since I've been living over here in Portugal, I've been looking after butterflies. I've been writing about butterflies. I've been talking about butterflies. I did a talk a couple of years back in the Algarve, and the subject was butterflies and butterfly gardening. And I used to write for this magazine, and I got like a, I can see, this is 
Just, oh, there we are. It's difficult getting it in the camera. With yeah. The, uh, anyway, the oh, there we are. But it's a Mediterranean gardening magazine, and my first article mm -hmm. in it was about butterfly gardening. And so I've been like very involved in butterflies over here. I'm very involved in butterflies most of my life. I have a song called Butterfly in My Beard, which is becoming very popular. I, I put like a butterfly in my beard and I've got like, hang on, I'll just get it. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. It clips in. There we are. Butterfly in my beard. And so when I do this song, I uh, I encourage the audience to make a butterfly, say, like, this is how you make a butterfly. Mm -hmm. And most people will do this. Most people really enjoy, like, making butterflies. And I have the butterfly in my beard. So I, I'm, I'm actually getting known as a guy who, you know, is very involved in butterflies. I sing about them. I write about them. I, I rear them. I, I You know, it, it's, it's I'm very much about butterflies. And... Uh, what else has, has come about in recent years was that um, I've been very concerned about the plastic pollution and, uh, and and that's getting worse like all the time as well. So it would have been back uh, about 2010, 2000, around that time era, uh, I started to actually, you know, look into like the plastic pollution problem. And I found out it was actually much worse than I thought it was because I found out about the gyres in, in the sea with the mm -hmm. huge oceanic gyres, the, the most famous one being the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which has been estimated to be the size of Texas or even bigger. And that's the one that most people know about. But there are five of these gyres and they're all like huge accumulations of rubbish in the sea. So I started to find out about that and uh, I started to follow a guy called Captain Charles Moore. And he was one of the first people to really discover how bad the plastic problem was. And I found out about like plastic as microplastic in beaches. Like, so what may look like sand is actually partially composed of little particles of plastic. <coughs> and I was horrified, you know, I was already horrified before I started. But I thought, oh my God, this is terrible. So that kind of motivated me and inspired me to write a poem which is called Where Does All the Plastic Go? Right. And then the, the, year, the years went forward, yeah, the years went forward, as they're bound to do. And uh, I, I, I thought, look, maybe I should convert this into a song. And, and by the way, all my songs start out as a poem, and then I put the music to them later. So I put some chords to it, and it became a song. And around that time, I was kind of waiting for some celebrities, some, you know, major kind of rock musician or folk musician or pop musician or anybody in the music business to be actually doing some kind of protest song about plastic pollution. And I thought maybe Neil Youngman, Neil, by the way, is one of my music heroes, and Neil has kept up his protest singing and on so many different uh, topics. Right. And I thought, okay, maybe Neil Young will do a protest song about plastic pollution, but he didn't. So I thought, okay, it's, it's left to me. I've got to do this. I, I've got to you know, um, kind of step up and, and, and get my song together and, and tell the world about, you know, plastic pollution through the medium of, of a song. So I got my song recorded in Wales 
with Jace Lewis as my producer. And then I had a professional recording of a song. I got a video made over here by a guy called Philippe Raphael. So I got mm -hmm. a video, I got the song, and then I started to just promote it and tell the world about it, about my song. And I came up with an idea at the time as well, which was like Ocean Aid. And most people know about Live Aid. There was the, you know, the right. huge Live Aid concerts. I thought, okay, well, we need Ocean Aid. And uh, Ocean, again, like ideally, we have like a stadium sized gig somewhere with really big name acts from rock and pop like on that stage, uh, all under the banner uh, Ocean Aid. And uh, so that's, that's, my, that's still my, you know, my, my plan for one day if we can get this realized. But I started talking about that as my idea. And I'd also come to the conclusion it wasn't just plastic pollution, there were a whole lot of other threats to the ocean. And I started finding out more about this, and there's like acidification of the oceans, which a lot of people now know about, which is caused by the carbon dioxide in, in the atmosphere, which is too much of. So the oceans are becoming too acidic, and uh, things which like have shells are not doing too well because they need the lime in the water. And then there's like in Australia, there's like the coral bleaching is happening to the reefs because it's too hot. Uh, there are like um, overfishing of the oceans everywhere is taking place. Seabed mining is taking place. It's bad enough with all the mining going on in land, but they're also mining the, the seabed. And there's like uh, nuclear waste thrown in the oceans, which is awful. You know, I mean, it's, it's bad anywhere, but you know, we shouldn't have like nuclear stuff dumped in the oceans. There's other forms of pollution going in the oceans. Uh, there's so many problems. Um, also, like sonar and uh, military testing going on in the oceans. And I thought, okay, all of this stuff is, is a, a serious threat to marine life and, and to the health of the oceans. So all of that can be covered under the banner of Ocean Aid. So I started talking about Ocean Aid, my, my song. And uh, there's a guy from, from Italy. Uh, Filippo Solibello, and he interviewed me on Skype. And uh, he said he was writing a book, and the book is called Spam, Stop Plastica Amare. And he said, uh, Steve, I'm going to include you in my book. I think this ocean aid idea is brilliant. And he said, do you mind if I tell my contacts in Italy about it? I said, no, Filippo, I don't mind. You please, please do, you know. Let's get the word out because I don't care where Ocean Aid starts from or mm -hmm. where, it, you know, where it is actualized. I just want to see it happen, you know. Right. So that book came out and he's given me a four-page chapter in there, which is also called Where Does yeah. All the Plastic Flow? So that was Italy. And then he was going to invite me over to Italy. But then the pandemic uh, <clears throat> happened, okay. So then that put more or less a stop on, on, on so many things happening. And Italy was one of the first countries to get hit badly. So that was Italy, but that, and what happened then was I also was in the Portugal News, uh, and I was on the front page of the Portugal News singing against pollution, and I really liked that. They gave me like a feature inside. In Wales, and I've got this here, um, I ended up in the British. In this magazine, Sund magazine from Wales, 
and I have like a two-page two-page mm -hmm. spread in here about Ocean Aid and, and my plastic plastic pollution song. And then uh, I last year, last year, right? Um, because it's been difficult for people you know, people, musicians to do actual gigs on stages and stuff. A lot of us have been doing stuff online. And a friend of mine introduced me to a friend of his, a lady called Rue Starr from New York. Mm -hmm. Rue, by the way, is, is, is well known in New York as a singer, songwriter, an actress, and just media person, really. And she was having like a, a weekly show called the Rue and Who Show. So I went on the Rue and Who Show and uh, I, I got to know all the other performers on there. And one of them, Joel Landy, uh, is friends with somebody who's running um, the Ecologic Show on WBAI-FM. So he said, Steve, you know, would you like to come on here? I said, yes, please, of course. So I was actually on this show as a guest and, and, and talking and playing my songs. So basically, so what I'm saying is we've got like Italy, Wales, uh, Portugal, um, New York, America, Austra Australia comes into this as well because uh -huh. I got found on Instagram, right? And I'm now, by the way, I'm now a Rotarian. I've got my, my rotary, my, my pin there. <laughs> I've got my rotary pack here. And this has opened up a completely new world for me. Uh, welcome to Rotary. And what happened was that this was the uh, the Rotary Club of Wyndham Harbour, which is in Australia. They found me on Instagram and said they'd like to feature me in the Wave magazine. And of course, again, I said, yes, please. So that was how I got involved in that. And that was another country added to it, Australia. And this is all fine with me because what I'm saying is that the oceans are under threat all around the world. Mm -hmm. And so then they don't belong to any particular country. They're everybody's, you know, everybody shares the ocean. So it's a worldwide problem. So the more countries that want to come in to try to do something about ocean aid, to try in any way to help, you know, save the oceans, the better. And, uh, and then this happened, uh, actually, I mean, this happened this year. Um, <clears throat> Trevor from Moonbooks, uh, was posting something about he wanted some, somebody to write for the Earth Spirit uh -huh. series. And so I said, Trevor, you know, I'm, I'm your man. You know, I'm already doing all this stuff about plastic pollution, the oceans, and ocean day. So he said, all right, Steve, you've got the job. And so I wrote this book. And this is how this book, Saving Earth Spirit, Saving Mother Oceans, came about. Awesome. And, and uh, I'm so pleased. I'm, I'm really honoured to have some amazing people who've endorsed this. Captain Paul Watson has endorsed it from Sea Shepherd. And Lily Platt. Lily Platt is a global ambassador, a youth ambassador. She's friends mm -hmm. with Greta Thunberg. And she, she's given me a really nice endorsement for it. So this is, I'm really proud of this book. Wow. And all of that's been kind of, what's been happening with my ocean aid project that's incredible that you that that has had such a huge reach in all these different countries and people and getting involved with it um i mean without the ocean nothing on this planet is going to survive 
That's completely right, Gary, and that's what uh, Captain Paul says. Captain Paul, and I use this quote in my book, Captain Paul says, if the oceans die, we die. As simple as that. Yeah. So that's how important it is, you know. So, yeah, you're completely right, you know. Um, and that's why, for me, it should be a priority. It's a, it's mm -hmm. a priority of mine, you know. We have to save the oceans. Do you have any, like, like, like for... Um, ocean aid like how do you think it would work would it be like um like a three-day type of concert would you would it be oh, like would, would it be a lineup that you're going to take around the world like as a tour and try to raise international interest in it you know that, that i think that's a great a great way it could go uh but what i thought over the last year or so since we've had this pandemic and lockdowns and everything is that um Maybe like uh, it doesn't have to be like massive stadium-sized gig. We can still have one of those. That would be ideal. Mm -hmm. But people kind of locally can do whatever they want under the Ocean Aid banner, and, and it doesn't, you know, like if somebody if somebody wanted to contact me That's and say I'm in wherever, you know, mm -hmm. fill in the blank, and I've got a band and I got some friends and they're in the band and we'd like to do an Ocean Aid concert. What do you think? I'm going to say, yeah, please, you know, go for it, do it. So it doesn't really matter how how well known the people are or where they are or whatever. Mm -hmm. If somebody wants to do something ocean aid, you know, I say, just, just do it. Yeah. And so I'm thinking maybe that there will be like lots of little events around the world. And eventually there'll be so much publicity for this that somebody's going to say, hey, we, let's put on a proper big, you know, big uh, big stage, big names event. But it, it's kind of leading that way anyway, because um, what I didn't tell you is that the, the Sun magazine, is a Sun Records, Mike, Mike Kennedy, who's the boss of Sun Records, mm -hmm. has been talking to me about he wants to put out an album, okay, a various artists' album, and that would be kind of under the Ocean Aid banner. So uh, we are hoping to, to raise money for Sea Shepherd and Sea Shepherd know about this. As, as you can already gather, like Captain Paul Watson knows me now and has endorsed my book. And uh, so that's one way this could really take off. Uh, what you maybe don't know is that Coldplay, Coldplay are one of the acts that support Sea Shepherd. Wow. Mick Jagger is one of the acts that supports Sea Shepherd. <laughs> okay, so there are some really big names in, in the rock music world who are all for Sea Shepherd. And so uh, what I'm kind of hoping is that um, if we can get any of these, these guys, you know, to say, yes, they would like to be involved in Ocean Aid, that'd be it. Like, for example, like if Mick Jagger said, oh, Ocean Aid sounds brilliant. You know, he could pull the strings. He could just get onto a lot of people he knows oh, in the yeah. industry, and and it could be massive. You know, and uh, the reason I know about the because Mick had already spoken out on Twitter about plastic pollution, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I've been kind of keeping a score on all, all of the, the famous people who were doing something about plastic pollution. And there's a lot, but none of them were doing any songs about. As I say, this is why I thought, well, I've got to do a song about it because nobody else. And they're from all different kind of uh, genres. And uh, Kenny West has spoken out about plastic pollution a lot. Um, Chrissy Hind has spoken out about plastic pollution. 
Travis Matthews has spoken out about plastic pollution. Ed Sheeran. So, you know, what I'm saying is that there's a lot of different people in the music business yeah. who are really well known. And if we could get even just some of them together to say, yes, we'd like to go on stage at a big event and do an Ocean Aid concert, it would be massive. Yeah. And uh, that's my dream, if you like. Uh, with, with the Ocean Aid, is it mainly to drive awareness, or is there any plan to, like, raise money and create, like, um, some type of, I guess it would, a charity or, or an organization to clean up the oceans? Well, at the, at the moment, the, the money uh, I would like to raise is Sea Shepherd, because for me, Sea Shepherd is the best of all the charities, organizations doing what they can to save the ocean. And uh, I, I don't think I'm alone with that view. Mm -hmm. As I say, there's some like major big names like Coldplay, Mick Jagger. I know the actress Daryl Hammer. Uh, she supports Sea Shepherd. So there's a lot of people out there that think Sea Shepherd, Captain Paul, you know, they're the people we should support. So I, if I, you know, if I had any kind of hand in, which I would have a hand in it because it's my idea, I, I would say I would want the funds to go to Sea Shepherd. Hmm. Um, awesome. But of course, again, you know, if somebody wanted to do like a small, a local, you know, um, Ocean Aid uh, concert, or uh, then, and, and they wanted to support, say, Greenpeace or any of the other organisations, mm -hmm. that's fine. And I, I think all the organisations um, are worthy of support because there's a lot of people trying to do something about saving the seas now, mm. and. What is, what is already happening, which is great, is that there are people doing beach cleanups all yeah. around the world. You know, I mean, you go back 10 years, I and mean, if you started talking about doing a beach clean, that, that was kind of weird, like, well, what do you want to do that for? You know, the, um, but now it's becoming almost like normal for people to be thinking about the plastic is a problem and we, we should be cleaning it up. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I'm really, really glad about that. I'm really glad to see that, like, in so many places, people are seeing this is a problem. We ought to do something about it. Yeah. Like, I know here in, in well, at least in the, here in New Jersey, they're, st they're stopping uh, people using from, from using straws. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that's been going on for quite a while in many places. But it, a straw is, is, you know, it's so small. In, if you come, if you look at the actual, you know, the volume of, of, of what is going out there, for example, like one of the main problems are like these vast fishing nets that, that, that get abandoned in the sea, mm -hmm. the, the nets that they use with the trawlers. And these nets are terrible. And they're making up like a huge bulk of, of the actual oh. plastic that's out there. Because plastic bottles is a major source of problems. And, uh, now I'm in, in Rotary, in, in the Rotary Clubs. You know, I, I actually saw a presentation last week from Mexico. And uh, these people who were Rotarians were trying to clean up their area. And they were showing a, a river. This was a proper river. It wasn't, and the river was completely blocked with plastic. Horrifying. Mm. And, uh, and th but this is not like unusual now in, in some parts of the world. For um, example, like countries in Asia, uh, countries in Africa, the rivers are being blocked with plastic. 
And the problem really is that the people haven't got recycling, you know, facilities there. And so what do they do with their rubbish? You know, they have to throw it somewhere. And the, and the problem used to be that before all this ridiculous amounts of plastic going out into the world, you could throw stuff into a river and it was okay if you had wood or mm -hmm. paper or fruits or whatever it was, you know, you could chuck that in the river and it would decompose eventually and it wasn't harmful to the environment. And so like, for example, like a, a massive river, the Ganges, you know, in India, you know, the Holy Ganges, it was actually at one point okay to throw stuff in the Ganges. Right. Because the Ganges was big enough and, and whatever it was, it would decompose. But of course, the plastic doesn't decompose. So if you throw plastic in the Ganges, it's a problem. And eventually it comes to the sea, which is what I sing in my song, like, you know, where does all the plastic go? Into the sea, into the sea. How does it get there? Who threw it away? Was it you or was it me? And, and that's the other thing that I think, like, the, everybody is guilty to some degree of, of causing this problem. You know, I, I mean, I know, like, I buy plastic things. Everybody, mm -hmm. we have to. It's almost impossible, you know, to be like plastic free these days, you know. And uh, what I think is important is reduction. I think reduction is really important. I think like um, anybody can reduce the amount of plastic in their lives. And any reduction is worthwhile. Um, and I, I know like I started years ago because I started to find out about this. What can you do? You know, for example, you can take your own shopping bag to a shop when you go shopping. Yeah. Instead of taking their plastic bag, you say, no, thank you. I've got my own cloth bag. Mm -hmm. And you can use that over and over again. So I started doing that years ago. Um, another one is like, instead of buying a, a, a bottle of, of, of water in a plastic bottle, you can get a stainless steel bottle and fill it up with water from your tap and take that with you. And again, I do that. And, so there are actual things which everybody can do. And like if everybody did them, it does make a, quite a big reduction in the amount of plastic that's being made and, and sold. Because at the moment, like manufacturers are still making vast amounts of plastic carrier bags, you know, to go to shops. Um, manufacturers are making plastic bottles for bottled water. And in some places, actually, and, and this, I think, is, is actually sad. For example, like I lived in Tenerife, and most of the people in Tenerife used bottled water, myself included, mm -hmm. you know. And that was because the state of the public water was so bad over there that sometimes you would have actual media warnings to say, you know, the, the public at Tenerife advised not to use the water for drinking or cooking purposes either because it has too much fluoride in it. So they were admitting that they weren't saying like, you know, there's some people who campaign about there's too much fluoride. They were saying there is too much fluoride. Mm -hmm. An accident had occurred at whatever plant and there was too much fluoride. <laughs> this would go out in the mainstream media. So people over there got the idea it wasn't safe to drink water, so they buy the water from the shop in the bottled water. And... Uh, you know, there wasn't a lot you could do about that, apart from, you, I suppose you could get on to the authorities to say, can you sort your water out, you know? Can we have water that is guaranteed mm -hmm. not to have too much fluoride in it? Um, so, you know, in many parts of the world, it is a problem. Because yeah. the water that they, they've got, they have to get, you know, they have to buy the bottled water. 
But this is where like reduction is important, you know, because the more people, in, in, for example, in a country like where I am now in, in Portugal, um, say uh, in, in the UK, you know, where we've got tap water, which is okay, we don't need to buy the bottled water. Mm. And uh, the more and more we can get the amounts of plastic being reduced at the manufacturing stage, the better. Um, the recycling thing, I think recycling is worthwhile. The more we can get recycled, the better. But uh, I think like a lot of people realize that often the stuff you throw out for recycling doesn't get recycled. <laughs> it ends up in landfill. You know, this is sad. So again, it, it, it's basically, it needs like a restructuring. Yeah. I think, I, I mean, I, I actually use paradigm shift in my book as a term, you know. I, uh -huh. I think really we need a complete paradigm shift on, on how the world is being run. Yeah. You know? One of the things about recycling that, <coughs> excuse me, that is weird is like, okay, we take this plastic and we, we recycle it. But after we recycle it, then how do we still prevent it from ending up back in the ocean anyway? Uh -huh. it, 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 it's so hard to stop stuff ending up back in the ocean. No, it's um, say, say you you actually bought something made of recycled plastic, and eventually it came to an end. You know, and so you have to throw it out. Even if you threw it in the recycle, uh, and there's some plastics you can only recycle once or twice, and mm -hmm. then you can't recycle them again. So it's going to come to an end. So then you throw it in the in the ordinary garbage, non-recyclable garbage. It ends up in a landfill. A lot of stuff ends up in the landfill. The problem with the landfills is if you have like a storm and and a lot of wind, the stuff can be like blown off the landfill, and if there's a river by nearby, it blows into the river. So much stuff ends up in the river. Uh, there's, I was talking to you know, my friend Pedro, the filmmaker, who was here yesterday about something in this town where I live in. It's a town called Quinta du Conde. There was something I saw in not so long ago, which I thought was wonderful. There's a new school here, okay, and there's outside the school, there was a, a drain in the road with a, a, a grating across it, and they've painted around it um, like a, a picture of a fish. And, and the words saying, the sea starts here. Basically, so it's telling children and telling anybody that sees it, if you throw mm -hmm. something down this drain, it's, it's likely going to end up in the river, and the river's going to take it to the sea. And that, I thought, was like an important message to be making. Yeah. And that is the problem, really, is that all the stuff that goes down the drains and goes down to the rivers, it ends up in the sea. And uh, something I, I talk about, you know, is that the, there were so many sources of plastic that we don't think of as plastic. For example, like all cars and, and, and vans and lorries have got tires. And the tires used to be rubber. So it, it, it's easy to think um, a tire for a vehicle is rubber. It's a natural material. It'll break down. Mm -hmm. The problem is that the tires today are actually partly rubber and a whole lot of plastic. <clears throat> so it's another source of plastic. When you were driving a car down a road, there's wear and tear on the tire on the road. What happens? Little little fragments of plastic are, uh, are breaking off. What happens if you get a rainstorm? The rain washes the whatever's on the road into the drains. 
it's plastic, microplastic in that case, and that ends up in the river. So uh, there's so many ways that the plastic is, is actually entering the, entering the environment. Another one is the tea bag. Unfortunately, a lot of people are starting to find out about this. Uh, you know, people think of a tea bag, that's an organic thing, and it's not. It's, it's usually made of plastic. Oh, I didn't know that. So, you know, I mean, I only discovered that a few years oh. ago because I, I was putting, like, my tea bags in the, in the compost or, or, or directly in the ground. And I'd think, well, they'll decompose, but they don't. You know, so maybe like a month or two later, I'd find the, still, the, the tea bag still there. So I thought, what's going on here? And then I found out that this is known about that the tea bags are mostly made with plastic in them. That's so weird. Like, why would he even make a tea bag out of plastic when he can make it out of any type of fabric? Uh, I, I think it's basically the idea is to, to strengthen the tea bag. I think that's the main idea. But I, I'd actually have to check that. I, 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 <laughs> I know about the problem, but I don't know. It's so strange. Um, but you know what, what? The point I'm trying to make really is that there are so many things that we use in in, in life yeah. that we're not even thinking is plastic, and so many of the things that we use are ending up in the environment via the drains, via the rivers. And even when via the landfills, if stuff goes to landfill, it can still end up in the river. And other stuff is ending up in the air. That's another problem. You know, if you get like a, a strong wind, um, but even just like a plastic bag, even if you put your plastic bag in, say, a recycling container, or it, it can still, like, if there was, if the, the recycling container, if the, if the top was open to some degree and some stuff on the top of it blew out of the container, it blows. The plastic bag blows about easily. And that's the problem. Um, microplastic, this is, this is happening, like, uh, dust, which may be microplastic, nanoplastic, for example, coming off a, a tire with plastic in. When you have a, a strong wind, it blows it up into the air. And this is now becoming so bad that because there's all this plastic in the air, you can go to the top of a mountain, you can go to a polar region where the, there is snow, and if you analyze what's in the snow, you find microplastic. How did it get there? It got there in the air. You know? um, and so uh, I say, and a lot of people who are concerned about this are saying that there is actually nowhere now on the planet which has not got plastic in it. And that, that to me is really worrying, you know, and why I, I think, you know, we really need to stop it getting any worse. And, you know, if you think about the seas, about the oceans, which is a major concern of mine, it's all... It's all well and good, and it's, and it's actually really bad that we've got all this floating plastic in, in these things like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. But we've got a lot of plastic that's sunk to the bottom. So you can go to the depths, of the, the deepest parts of the ocean, and there's all plastic there. Yeah, how do we get and that out? It's, it's impossible, you know. And there's, I mean, there's no way that you can get the plastic from the ocean depths. Uh, well, you could, but I mean, imagine the amount of work that you'd have to you'd have to do to 
and even just one area of the ocean. You know, and it's like I, I think about, you know, which is becoming common knowledge, fortunately, lots of the sea animals are swallowing plastic. You know, mm -hmm. you know we've all seen now pictures of, of the, the whale, the beached whale, and they do the autopsy and they find rope and plastic bags and all kinds of junk inside the whale. And most of us have seen very sad pictures of an albatross ship, which has died and in its, in its, in its belly, there's all like plastic, like cigarette lighters and all kinds of rubbish. So we, we know that like the, the marine animals and the seabirds are swallowing plastic. But what I realized was also the deep sea creatures are swallowing plastic because they haven't got much to eat down there anyway, which is why a lot of them are, have evolved to have like mm -hmm. maybe like a massive stomach or um, uh, a jaw which can kind of which can detach to swallow something much bigger than themselves or or they've got like luminous like the anglerfish have got like a luminous line to try and you know lure a creature to them then then they swallow it but they've got so much like or rather they haven't they haven't got the food down there so anything that they find they're likely to eat it. And that was another something that I realized about the overfishing. Okay, I was thinking like, if the ocean is overfished, which it is, if a seabird like an albatross goes out to look for food for its chick, which is what it's supposed to do, if it cannot find any fish, but it sees a floating piece of plastic, it's going to grab that and then it takes it back, it feeds it to the chick and that's the end of the chick. So the overfishing is indirectly causing another problem by eliminating, you know, the amounts of, of natural food which should be out there. And uh, I just think there's just so many problems, so many problems in, in the oceans today. So that was really like my motivation for why I wrote Saving Mother Ocean. Mm. And by the way, I, I decided on like Mother Ocean because, you know, a lot of people talk about Mother Earth which is fine. Yeah. And a lot of people talk about Mother Nature, which is fine. But I still I thought, well, what about Mother Ocean? Because Mother Ocean really is where all life originated. You know, science tells us that. It doesn't matter like, you know, what you, you believe. But um, if we look to what science says, science says that life started in the oceans. You know, in the uh, in the primeval oceans, you had like these small creatures which were starting and then the life eventually moved onto the land with things like amphibians and, you know, we, we've all seen that, that scientific um, explanation of how life started. So, so we know, if you like, that the life started in the oceans. So to me, like, the source of life is a mother. And I wrote in my book as well about the Kogi people. I don't know if you know about the Kogi people. No. A lot of people don't. Um, I first came across the, the Kogi people who live in Colombia. They live on a mountain, the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta in, in Colombia, in South America. These people are, are just an amazing tribal people. And they survived the Spanish invasion, whenever that was by retreating up, up the up the mountains out of the way and so they kept their culture intact okay 
And their, in their belief system, again, they talk about a mother. They believe in, in the creator as a mother, not a god, a mother. And they believe that they are the guardians of this planet. They believe they were given the job, like sacred tasks to do, mm-hmm. as to what, what is needed to protect the, the rest of the planet. They believe all life is sacred. They believe it was all made by the mother. And they, uh, they are experts on the ecosystem. This is incredible. Like but what, what they actually have in, in their mountains, Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta, is that they have every possible microclimate and, and habitat somewhere on the mountain. So it goes from very cold and snow on the top of the mountain down to tropical, toward at the base, you know, rainforest at the base of the, of the, of the, of the mountain and mangrove forests at, at the coast. And so you have like a whole range there. And so they know how each of these different uh, parts of, 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 of the mountain and of the planet should be to be in good, healthy condition. And they, they found out that the top of the mountain, which should have snow on, should be really cold, wasn't. So the snow had gone. And that was really worrying for them because they, they say, and they're right, that the source of all the water is coming from the mountain top. Mm-hmm. When the snow melts, it, it forms a stream, which then as it goes downhill becomes the river. And then that, that, all of that water then is the water needed by the forests, which are further on down and all the way down. <coughs> so the source of water is being destroyed. <coughs> And that for them was like a, a warning sign that all, all is not well at all. So they made a documentary in 1990, which is how long ago, with a guy who I actually know, Alan Herrera, who's a filmmaker, who also has endorsed my book. And in this, in this film, the film, by the way, is called uh, From the Heart of the World, The Elder Brothers' Warning. And they describe in this film how... Oh, oh, by the way, uh, they regard themselves as the elder brother. That they, they believe they were made by the mother before the rest of us were made. And they don't, they don't think they're superior or anything. They just think that they happen to be made before everybody else was made. So they call us, you know, the younger brother. And they think the younger brother has lost track completely with how to live in, in accordance with, with, with the mother. And they say on the film that we must stop the drilling, the mining, the ripping at the earth. And, and they talk about the mother. They say the mother is sad. You, you, are, you are cutting up the mother. You are, you are drilling into her. She is sad. And they say that like, if, we, if, we, if we don't stop harming the mother, the world will end. And, and they said this in 1990. This is, you know, how, how graphic they got with it. And... So I came across these people in 1990. I saw that, that, that it was a BBC documentary, mm-hmm. The Heart of the World. And it, it, it made an impact on me then. But I, I didn't realize, again, I, so many things in my life, I don't realize how bad it's going to get until it, it gets there, you know? Well, I'm sure like that applies to a lot of people who could say yeah. the same. Like, uh, I, I was aware that, you know, things were, were not going so well in many different ways in the world. But I didn't really realize that all this deforestation was going to be taking place. I didn't realize we were going to have all these terrible oil spills in the oceans. I didn't realize that plastic pollution was going to get out of hand. And so 
you know, I've included talking about the Kobe in my book because I think it was important that they gave a warning in 1990. And so many people have given warnings, and the problem is that the warnings are not heeded. You know, and um, the, the other thing that I, I was trying to explain is that indigenous people, indigenous people are aware of the problems. Like the Kogi people are an indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And they are well aware of the, you know, we shouldn't be doing all this. We shouldn't be logging the forests. We shouldn't be drilling for oil. We shouldn't be doing seabed mining. All this stuff that, that people are doing is destroying the world. And, but they're not alone. You know, you can go to other, many other tribal peoples and ask them what's wrong. And they say the same. They say, you are living, you're not, you know, living in a healthy way. You know, we should be living in balance with wherever we are, and you're not doing that. And uh, I saw there's a film about some people called the Jarawa. They live in the Andaman Islands um, in Malaysia. And these people are amazing. That They've apparently been there for 75,000 years, okay? And, and they, they are happy, or they were happy, living in the jungle, okay? They say that the jungle gives them everything they need. They get their food from the jungle, and th there was nothing that they needed. Um, but they, they have been, if you like, kind of invaded by modern society, like a road has been built through, through the jungle. Tourists go there. Um, Poachers go there and, and kill the animals that, that they were depending on. Plastic pollution washes up on the beach where they were catching fish. Um, and so that their way of life is gradually being destroyed. And, and it's, it's so sad because these people have been there 75,000 years by estimates, okay. They say they have everything they need from their jungle home. They didn't need any, and they, they don't want any of our stuff. They've also said that. They say, the outside world, we don't want anything from it. We think it is bad. So they don't want our way of life. They don't care about it. They were quite happy if we could leave them alone in their jungle home with their beach, where they can catch the fish, where they can get fruit from the trees in, in the forest, where they can kill pigs, which is an animal that they ate for meat. That was all they needed. And they were happy, and, and they make this point of saying, we, we were happy and we are happy people. We don't need anything else. But all that's being destroyed. So the point I'm making is that these are people who, that know their balance. They know that, that the planet, the mother, if you like, provides everything we need. And what modern people are doing is wrong. You know, with all of this road making and city building and all of it, it's, it's all, it kind of like, for me it all started in um, the dawn of civilization, it's been loosely called, you know, like about maybe 6,000 years ago mm -hmm. when, when empires started, you have like all these different empires, the Roman Empire, and uh, all the empires had the same characteristic, that they all decided that somebody was in charge, the emperor or some leader, and that they had the right to go out to other parts of the world and invade it and make slaves of the people that were already there and destroy what was already there and to build cities there. And, and, and this went on all over the planet. And it's like we're, we're living in, if you like, um, 
the, the end results of empire building all over the world. And what happened all over the world again was all the indigenous people got invaded. And, you know, like I'm from, I'm from the UK, I'm from Britain, I'm from Wales originally. Uh -huh. Britain did a lot of this. Britain went out around the world invading it in, in what was called the British Commonwealth. Right. Yeah. And so it went to Africa and it said, oh, we're claiming this land. And the Spanish did this and the Portuguese did this. All these people went out to other parts of the world and they said, we have the right to, to take this land, to subjugate the people that are already there, um, and to do what we like. And so if we want to cut this forest down, we do that. If we want to make slaves of these people who are quite happy and we're living here in balance with, with nature here, we can do that. And what we can do is we can we can tell them that um, they need a religion. They need to they need the Christian religion or the Catholic religion. This is what's important. So we also tell them that they're wrong. That even what they believe is wrong. And uh, and if they don't like it, well, usually they end up killed. And and that, that was what actually happened in Tenerife. That, that, that for me was fascinating. Like when I first went to Tenerife, I found out about the Guanche people. Uh -huh. And the Guanche people were living in Tenerife and the other Canary Islands, quite happy that they, they were hunter-gatherer people, they, had, they got, you know, food from the sea, fruit, you know, plants they could eat, and uh, they were doing fine. But then the, the Spanish invaded the Canary Islands. And, and it was the same, exactly the same story as what happened in Central America, you know, that the, the, the people were invaded by the Spanish, and uh, the Guanche people put up a fight. They put up a fight for quite a long time, but eventually they were defeated. And uh, all, all of the stuff that all these empire-building people was visited on, on them. And so, you know, I found out about that and I saw, like, direct evidence for that when I was living in Tenerife about what happened to the Guanche people. And it, it's, it's been the same story all over the world. And um, I think, in a way, that uh, so I, and I don't know how we do this, I, but I think like we need like a worldwide change, a big one. You know, I, I think I think that it's important for people to be listening to the indigenous people, the voices of the indigenous people. Well, I'm actually pleased this is actually happening. There are a lot a lot of indigenous people are getting listened to more now. And I think that uh, the modern ways of life, the technological ways of life, you know, it, it's, it's all well and good. And, you know, we all, I mean, I'm using like technology now to talk to you. I've got like a microphone here and this, this computer, laptop computer I'm using. And this is all, all well and good. But it, it's got kind of out of hand that we've got too much technological stuff. We're all being subjected to buy more stuff, you know. And that, that I make a point of talking about in my book, like all the time, all of us living in the modern world today are being told we need to buy more. We need to get a new, the latest model, like, you know, a, a new, the, the latest model of this computer, or you need a better microphone, or the clothes you're wearing, you, you need the latest fashion, or, you know, anything, anything you can think of, we're being encouraged to go and get a new one, you know, and, uh, so we're in a, like a, a capitalist con consumerist society where and and that's a big part of the problem you know i think so i think 
You know, like, for example, like the plastic. We all buy more plastic because we're encouraged to. You know, like plastic clothing is a problem. I was talking earlier about stuff that we don't even realize is plastic. A lot of people buying clothes don't realize the clothes they're buying is plastic, but it is. Like, you know, so many forms of clothing we're buying today, it's not made of cotton or wool. It's made from artificial fibers or synthetic fibers, in other words, plastic. And uh, it, it's, it's just, it's insane. It's like I go out sometimes and I just look around myself and I think, how much plastic is around me, you know? Say I go to a shopping area and I look in a shop and I see all these clothes and I know that a lot of those clothes are made of plastic. I look around at my, my fellow human beings in the shopping area and I think, how many of us here are wearing clothes made from plastic? I look at some of the people, maybe they're drinking some water out of a plastic bottle. I know some more plastic. And it, it's like, it's everywhere, you know. And what I, what I, I think ne needs to be done, really, is we need to somehow just reduce all this, somehow stop buying more and more and more of all this stuff. I, I use the word stuff, because stuff is what it is. It's just, um, it's stuff, and, and, and all of it is some unsustainable resources. That's something I, I came to the conclusion about really strongly. I just like, the way that we're all living is unsustainable. And that, that, that to me is the problem, you know, that, that we, live, we live in an unsustainable, unsustainable way. The resources are unsustainable. And I make the point in my book, Saving Mother Ocean, is that everybody used to think the ocean was so big that, we, that there was so much fish in the ocean, we could just keep on fishing in the ocean. Everybody thought the ocean was so big, we could dump whatever waste in that ocean, whatever it was, the ocean was big enough to handle it. It's not, you know? So it's like, um, the ocean was thought of as almost infinite. It was, it was so big we could just keep on using it and abusing it, but we can't. And it's the same with everything else, the forests. We used to think the Amazon rainforest, oh, it's so big, it goes on forever. It doesn't. So, you know, the, the, more, the more rubbish you throw in the ocean, the worse it gets. The more fish you take out of the ocean, the worse it gets. The more forests you, you chop down or burn, the worse it gets. And none of these things are finite. They're all, um, they're all resources that we, that we cannot just keep using. Mm. I think that's like a, a really you, important thing. Do you think if we don't prevent this from happening, you know, through efforts like you're making, that um, the Earth will just reset itself anyway through some type of catastrophe and where we're forced just to go back to living like indigenous people anyway without technology? Uh, yeah, I, I'm actually well aware of that. And I, I think <clears throat> there's a lot of talk about the Greece, Great Reset and people, you know, some conspiracy theories about that. But I've been thinking that Mother Earth, you know, is actually already starting her own reset, Great Reset because she has to, not because she wants to, not because our mother, if you like, wants to be destroying you know but because because if if there isn't a, gr a great reset caused by the planet caused by the ecosystem caused by gaia 
then life as we know it, and life as all the other creatures that we share the planet with, cannot continue. I think that, you know, I've thought about that. I've thought, and so what we're seeing when we see like wildfires and we see droughts and we see tsunamis and we see torrential rain that floods everywhere, all this stuff which, which we're actually seeing, these are part of the natural great reset. So it doesn't really even matter whether we've got Klaus Schwab and various other people planning a great reset, whether they have a book on the great reset, which can be held up as evidence of all the all of that doesn't really matter because there's a great reset taking place anyway, and we're living in it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've become kind of increasingly aware of the fact that um, because this is happening, because the planet is resetting itself, because the sea levels are rising, okay, again, which I mentioned in my book, the sea levels really are rising. The coastal cities really will be under threat. If the sea keeps going up, most of the main cities are on the coast, yeah? New York, yeah. London, Cardiff, the city, they're all on the coast. Lisbon in Portugal, on the coast. So if the sea keeps coming up, the cities are going to flood. The cities are the main sources of civilization as we know it. If the sources of civilization as we know it are flooded, that, that's the end, really, for how, how we've all been living, you know? It's true. And, and, and it would be easy to say, okay, well, everybody can move to higher ground, but they can't, can they? We can't all move to higher ground. You can't, like, move all of the cities to a higher level. Uh, so that's not looking too good. And um, I think, you know, adding to what you're saying is, is really is that, for me, the more the glaciers are melting, which they are, the more Greenland is melting, which it is, the more the South and the North Pole are melting, which they are, it's obvious that this water is just going to add to the, the bulk of the water in the oceans and it's going to keep rising. And it's not stopping, it's, it's accelerating. That's the worst thing about it. Right. So if the, if the coastal cities are going to flood, that's the end of civilization as we know it. Uh, and I think that nobody knows, and I, that's another problem. I think, like, on, on so many of these things we're talking about, nobody knows. Nobody at all. You know, the, the most eminent scientists on the planet don't know. Doesn't matter what you believe, you, nobody knows, like, what the future exactly will entail. We can all have a pretty good guess. It's not looking too good right now, but, but nobody knows. And what we what we do know to some degree is that, in, in if you like the natural great reset, the animals and, and the plants are starting to respond to that. So some of them are moving north. Right. Some of them, if it's becoming too hot. Just like the people, it's becoming too hot for people in some areas now. The people are moving, calling this like climate migrants. And like for animals, if, if you're a bird or a butterfly and it's becoming too hot for you, you can actually move into a cooler area. If you have a plant, you can move. Although some, some things cannot move as quickly, so maybe that they die out, they become extinct, which is another problem we've got. We've, we're in what has been called the Anthropocene, the sixth great extinction. We're in that. Yeah. 
So a lot of species are dying out anyway. My own kind of personal take is that I think like if we can help preserve any species at all, it's worth doing, you know. So that's what I try to do. You know, try to think, well, we can give give a chance to any of the other animals and plants, let's do it. But it's got to the stage where we are losing plants and animals, but some of the plants and animals are able to move. So they're moving into areas which are more tolerable for them. And so, and this is actually happening, it's already happening. That like in Antarctica, which used to be just snow and ice, right. you get like areas now which are ground and you're having like green plants starting to grow there. I saw something about, I think there's some species of grass that grows there and there are various mosses which grow there in some parts of Antarctica where the ice is gone. We go to the pole, the North Pole, the Arctic, and the same kind of thing will be happening up there. And so it's like, for me, it's almost like getting my, my head around this. It's like getting my head, like I used to think that the poles were going to be there forever. I used to think you go to the South Pole, there's ice there and miles and miles of ice. You go to the North Pole, miles and miles of ice. What lives up there? Oh, things like the polar bear live up there, and the muskox, and they live up there. They're specially adapted to living in ice and snow. But if you thaw that ice and snow out, then they can't live there anymore. This is also sad. Things like a polar bear cannot live if it hasn't got all the ice that it needs. So the animals that need the, the frozen landscape will not be able to live there. But things which don't need the frozen landscape can live there. So stuff like, you know, various mammals that can live in a, a cold climate can move into what was, at one point, was just ice. Right. If plants are starting to grow there now, then little trees can start to grow there, and maybe you end up with a forest in what used to be the North Pole. Yes, and so the animals that used to live a little walk further south uh -huh. can now move there, you see what I mean. So basically, it really is a great reset. It's like the whole, uh -huh. you know, the, the planet, uh, moving stuff having to move about, which is a reset. That's interesting because um, the idea of like the inhabitable areas becoming habitable, inhabitable are areas are becoming inhabitable. Yes, yeah, that's right. And also for people, for example, you know, what's right now, like Siberia or um, any of the polar areas or, or Greenland, it's about Greenland, if Greenland thaws out, there's going to be a lot of land there. And I mean, a lot of land which will be land, it won't be ice anymore, it will be land. So you could build houses on that land. You could go to like an area of Siberia, which is thawing out, where you've got like, you know, permafrost, which is thawing out. M maybe like in areas like that, people could move in. So when I talk about, you might have like coastal cities being destroyed by flooding, where can you move all the people? Mm -hmm. You can move them to what used to be under ice. Yeah. Start building cities in, in places which used to be under ice. And you could. But again, it's a great reset. And it's a major, a major upheaval. You know, and uh, I, 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 I don't, you know, I don't know how it's going to go. But I, I do know that some of these things are already happening. 
you know, the, the ice really is melting. I, I know, like, this is happening in Tibet. You know, like, I used to think about Tibet. Oh, that was really cold up there. Like, Mount Everest, you know, the highest mountain, all the, the ice and the snow up on that mountain. The, think about, like, the lamas, the, the, the holy people who lived in Tibet, in this frozen kind of place that they lived. And, but all this is thawing out. You know, the glaciers in these areas are thawing. And so, if you try to think of what will the world be like physically, yeah, if all the ice is melted in, the, in you know, in, in the uh, in the Himalayas, in in Switzerland, in the in the North Pole, in the in Antarctica, you know, what would it actually be like then if all that ice is gone? You know, it's it's difficult to. Difficult to get a kind of picture of it. You yeah, know? yeah, and, it's, uh, it's difficult in more than one way because, like, in one way, you know, like, uh, like there's like this obvious, you know, water rising and stuff like that too. But when I, when I think about it, and from another perspective, it's like all this fresh water, you know, yeah. which would kind of, all this new fresh water would kind of dilute some of the pollution that's probably already existing in the polluted water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. actually, un un unfortunately, the fresh water going in, I, I found out about this fairly recently, the, the fresh water going into the oceans is already causing problems for some marine life. For example, there are, there are dolphins, I can't remember where, but there's somewhere where there were dolphins which are now suffering like skin lesions which has been found to be because the water has been there's too much fresh water going into the ocean where they are so you know so so really again this is like like a kind of a great reset uh, an animal like the dolphin that needs proper salt water cannot live if there's too much fresh water going into the ocean but we also we also have there are dolphins, which are not doing very well, which live in rivers. There are river dolphins. There are some which live in the Amazon, and there's some... I think maybe yeah. this one is extinct. We have some of them China. here in uh, in America, too. They come in yeah, rivers you, and Yeah, river stuff. dolphins, yeah. okay. So river dolphins don't mind the fresh water. But the, like the strictly marine ones do. So you've got, you know, fish and, and, and marine mammals that needs very salty water will have to move away if it's becoming too fresh. But stuff that, that can live in fresh water or brackish water can move in. So there's so many, you know, areas which whereby the wildlife as such can can adapt and move into a new area. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I think I think that's already kind of well in progress. That, that stuff is starting to move about now. Um, but, you know, but the unfortunate thing about it is that a lot of the wildlife is, is dying because of it. Because it, it, it can't move. And, you know, it, it goes to where it, it should go. You know, it, it's, in, it, its instincts say, go here, this, is, this should be here, and it isn't there now, so it, mm -hmm. it can't live there now. How about and, uh, how about evolving though? You think like certain wildlife will evolve into new species as a result? You know, I actually think that's already happened, and uh, I 
Um, something I talk about, because I've just written a book about butterflies, by the way, um, also for moon books. Uh, something I see where I'm living here in Portugal, and for me this is really fascinating, right? In the UK, there is a butterfly called the swallowtail, which is really rare in the UK. In fact, it's only found in what's called the Norfolk Broads, a wetland area mm -hmm. in the UK. And I've known about this since I was a boy. I've known the swallowtail very rare. Why is it very rare? Because the caterpillars only eat the milk parsley. The milk parsley is also very rare. It grows in wetland areas. It grows in the Norfolk Broads. Okay. I come over here to Portugal, and I hadn't been here long. I saw a swallowtail butterfly in the garden. I thought, oh wow, it's a swallowtail butterfly. It's really rare in the UK, which it is. But this is a European swallowtail. It looks almost identical, okay, to the British one. But a scientist, an expert on butterflies, could say this one is slightly different. So it's, it's what you call a subspecies, okay? Mm -hmm. The European swallowtail is Papilio Machaeon gorganus. The British one is Papilio Machaeon britannicus. It's a subspecies. And the British one will only eat the milk parsley. Over here, the European one, the caterpillars will eat the fennel plant. They'll eat the wild carrot plant and the cultivated carrot plant and they will eat the rue plant. But, and this is what I, I've seen going on in my, own, in my own time since I've been here, in this town where I live, Kintigan Con, every year we get really hot weather from climate change. It used to have hot weather, but we get more of it now. So most of the countryside goes brown and dried up and most of the vegetation dies back or dies completely and the fennel plant which does grow here in fact there's plenty growing in a, an area of scrubland quite near where i live by about may it's starting to look really sick by june july it's all gone brown and, and died back but in the gardens of the houses in all the towns in the city here People grow the rue plant, and the rue plant is evergreen, and people water their gardens, so the rue plant is doing fine, even if you have a drought and really hot weather. And there is a wild rue plant here, Ruta chalapensis, is its Latin name. So you have like a, a naturally occurring wild rue, and you have rue being cultivated in the gardens. My landlord told me that the people here believe it's good luck to have a, a root plant in the front garden. And they have a superstition. They believe it, it, it stops evil coming to your house. And I thought, well, I'm glad they have this superstition because it means that other people grow rue here. For the swallowtail butterfly, this is great because right. the swallowtail butterfly that I found, the caterpillar, the mother butterfly lays her eggs on rue and she doesn't bother with laying her eggs on the fennel because the fennel all dies now for most of the year. And, and the swallowtail butterfly using the rue plant can have several generations in the same year. Okay. And I've actually tried feeding fennel to um, a caterpillar that's been on the root. They won't eat it. They would rather starve than eat fennel. So although technically they can eat fennel, mm -hmm. they won't. 
So it's like what I've observed is like if you think about Darwin's theories of evolution and the adaptation which the species goes through. Like I'm, I'm seeing here the swallowtail butterfly adapting to its situation. The situation is the fennel plant is a plant that if I'm a female butterfly I can lay my eggs on and my caterpillars can eat. But the fennel plant is dying for most of the year, so this is no good. I want a plant that my caterpillar, you know, my babies, my caterpillars can eat. But this rue plant, you know, that, that's, that's growing, that grows all year round. So let's lay the eggs on the root plant. And so what I think is happening here is, that, is eventually you'll have like a subspecies of a subspecies. You see where I'm going with this? Yeah. But you'll have Papilio, Machion, Gorgonus. Mm -hmm. And something else that only the caterpillars only eat rue. And then, if you had like some major disaster here, a natural disaster or whatever, um, that kind of cut off this area from another area, that then leaves the swallowtail butterfly as a species which needs rue. And, and then it becomes a subspecies. Like in Britain, at some point back in time, the swallowtails there started using the milk parsley and they've carried on using the milk parsley. They won't use anything else now. And it's become a subspecies. So it's like what I'm trying to say is I'm seeing for myself proof of what Darwin was talking about, proof of seeing a species adapting to its, its, its situation and changing to some degree. And then you, you just keep it going. You, like you just add time to it. You add changing the situation to it, and you eventually end up with a new species. Wow, that's interesting. So, you know, it's like I can see that happening. And if I think about that on a much grander scale, if I think about what we were talking about, like a great reset, a natural great reset of the entire planet, then many species are gonna, are gonna do that. They're gonna have to adapt to the new, the new environment, <coughs> the new habitats. And I think, like, if you say you could go, you could maybe go 50 years, 100 years into the future, whatever happens, you know, say if the, if the, the coastal cities flooded or if some parts like India and Africa become too hot and become desert or whatever, even if they become desert, okay, there are species which can live in deserts. There, isn't, there, there are no deserts which we already have that haven't got life living in the deserts. Maybe not much life, right. but life. Yeah. So well, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say is if you have like a country, like a, a big country like India, okay, which is becoming too hot, if some of that becomes too hot and it becomes a desert, from the point of view of nature, from the point of view of, of creatures living there and plants as well, some plants, some creatures can still live in the desert. And they move in, or what we're talking about, maybe they adapt and they become actually a new species, a new, maybe a subspecies of something that can survive <coughs> in the desert. So I think it's like maybe that, that there will be a, a whole lot of uh, evolutionary, ev yeah, I'm just, I'm just thinking of this now, evolutionary. Um, uh, possibilities for adaptation for species living in a radically transformed planet. Whole different world with whole different species.
whole different world with whole different species. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, how many of us will be here? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know I don't either. Know. I have but, no idea what it's going to look like. But, but something I do think, and I, I, I do say, is that I, I think that um, some of the, you know, the fabulously wealthy people, um, and I also said a lot of these fabulously wealthy people are well aware of the actual conditions of the planet. People like Elon Musk, mm -hmm. and Bill Gates, and, you know, they're not stupid people at all. They know what's going on, yeah? Now, as you probably know, like Elon Musk is planning to go to Mars. Okay. Yeah, off-planet makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean, he's got the money. So if he can get to Mars, he can say, well, I'm safe. You know, I'm, I'm on Mars. So whatever happens to him, he'll be okay to be on Mars. Um, I think that this is also very unfortunate that the people who are the billionaires, the people who've got fantastic amounts of money, they are likely to survive just about anything that you can throw at it down here. You know, like if, if somewhere becomes too hot, they move. Somewhere becomes underwater, they move to somewhere which is, which is still warm. You know, and, and, and they, they've already got like maybe several homes around this and, and they can pay whatever, you know, it takes for, uh, for them to be okay. Um, so, a lot of the wealthy people, I think, would survive if you have like a, um, Stop. a planetary catastrophe, you know, whatever it might be. You could say that some of the people that would survive that Stop. would be the fabulously wealthy. But I think also you would have like um, indigenous people who would survive because the indigenous people know how to make do with stuff from their environment. That's the thing that they know. That's the, that's the thing that all indigenous people know. They know what plants they can eat. They know how to find the plants. For example, like a, a tribal people that live in a very hot, like a desert area, you know, they might know you can dig in the sand and find things, you know. People who live in like in a jungle area, they might know what plants you can eat, what fruit you can eat, yeah. So they all know stuff about their environment. And I think that would give them like a, a good chance of survival. So, so it's almost like, this is quite, quite, quite weird, but it's almost like you've got two areas of, of, of human society that have got equally good chance of survival. You've got the fabulously rich technological people who can pay you know, pay their way and say, Stop. You know, I need this done, I can move here, I've got... And, and then you've got the other people who haven't got any of that, but they know how to live in in, in, in an area they're in. They know, you know, how, how to hunt, how to fish, what you can eat, what you can't eat. So, if you had, like, a lot of, a lot of people, like, you know, wiped out, You've, you've still got a pretty good chance of, of, of some humans surviving from both those different kind of walks of life. You've got the, some fabulously, fabulously wealthy technological people surviving, and you've got some people who can live in a jungle surviving. And uh, but where the two would meet, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. 
Um, so before we wrap this up, again, my dog barking in the background. Now. I gotta let him out. <laughs> so before we wrap it up, where can my listeners find you and find your book? Well, they can they can find me. Steve Andrews. Can we Steve Andrews? Mm-hmm. Actually, if I get rid of my question, I'm trying to. Are you going there? Steve, Steve Andrews. Dot info. Uh huh. Steve Andrews. Dot info. Yeah, and, and actually, I, I call this my landing page because it will take you to the bottom page. Okay. Um, which is my way of, ha- of handling the confusion about Will you stop? There are two pages. Uh, you can find me there. And you can find my book at, at Moonbox. Uh, but basically, if you want to find my new book, you can. Um. <laughs> If you if you just Google Steve Andrews and Saving Mother Ocean, you will find the Moon Books site. Awesome. Well, I will post the links to both of these in a notes of this episode, so my listeners can find you. Okay. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. And, uh, have I got time for the song? Yeah. Go ahead. All right. But let's go out after all that very serious talk. Let's go out with a happy song. Let's go out with Butterfly in My Beard. And there's the butterfly in my beard. And this is how you make a butterfly. So if you'd like to make a butterfly, please do. Here we go. I had a butterfly in my beard, oh yeah. I had a butterfly in my beard, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I had a butterfly in my beard. It looked pretty strange. It looked pretty weird. Well, and 
Awesome. Thank you. That was fantastic. I love it. Thank you, Gary. Thank you so much. (laughs) Great. Well, thanks again for being on. And uh, hang on for one more moment. I just have to play the outro. Okay. Yeah. Sure.